save big money on plant protection supplies. Now at Menards. Defend your garden with Triazicide Insect Killer. Its fast-acting formula protects lawns, vegetables, and many other plants. It kills more than 260 insects by contact, above and below ground. Choose from ready-to-spray, concentrate, or granular. Save big money on Triazicide Insect Killer at Menards. And check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money at Menards. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. You are listening to Over and Back's Basketball Mysteries of the 1970s. Today's mystery is, how revolutionary was Bill Walton? Jason, with me as usual is Rich, and we are talking about Bill Walton, of course, one of the great forces in basketball history when healthy. That's always kind of the caveat with Walton. <laughs> well, one of the, what, what are your before we get into what, what are your thoughts on Bill Walton, the commentator, the basketball commentator? Because I've always enjoyed him, but there are a lot of people that don't. Yeah, um, uh, he is sometimes very good and very interesting, and then he is sometimes very much. Um, uh, I think the blowhard, you know, fall in love with his voice type stuff is also very apt. But uh, yeah, for, for the most part, I you know he he brings enough interesting personality things that I, I tend to and, and I'm, I'm pretty cool with what he does. Okay, so you're you're, you're pro, and I agree. There are yeah. times when he's a little great, but I, I'm I'm pro Bill Walton as well. I'm, so I, I just wanted to. Yeah, I'm 80 percent pro pro Bill Walton. We'll say. Okay, that's yeah. Okay, that's good. I, I'm I'm down with yeah. that. That'll work for me. It, it kind of sucks now that he's relegated to like Pac-12 like basketball on Saturday nights or whatever now. But that's all right. Sure, sure. Uh, he's even more of a loon on those too. If you ever listen to those, like cause now he just doesn't care because like nobody's watching or listening, and he's in California and he loves it. He's just you know doing UCLA games. Or, it's actually pretty fun. Yeah, well, I I'm glad he's happy. No, I have not really. I, I there's an occasional um you know whenever something comes on Twitter or you know I I run into something of some goofy thing that he's done. But but for the most part, no. I, yeah, I'm not. I'm surprisingly not checking out a whole lot of Pac-12 uh, basketball. So yeah, well, neither it's am I. Really <laughs> so. Bill Walton, as a player, he was an amazing passer, defender, shot blocker, and a crafty scorer with a whole range of smarts and skills. Uh, just had the ability to see the floor incredibly well. He won three college player of the year awards at UCLA and two national titles, part of the uh, the end of that uh, UCLA dynasty. He initially in his career dealt with two injury plague seasons in Portland before the 1977 team became a basketball Pierce darling and won the NBA title. Uh, they seemed on the verge of a dynasty when Walton's foot injury in 1978 led to a nasty divorce with the team. And then he missed all but 14 games over the next four seasons uh, and really didn't, uh, wasn't able to fulfill 
the kind of greatness that people expected of him until toward the end of his career when he had a great role off the bench with the 1986 Celtics. But uh, he was a passionate competitor on the court, very demanding, and he had a hard time letting go of things, demanding excellent of others, and fit perfectly with uh, Jack Ramsey. So uh, really a... Uh, he, obviously the breaks of the game covers the uh the blazers so well we've done a podcast on that and we're that's actually uh, some of our of the podcast on discussing that's going to be attached to the end of this uh episode but before this obviously we're going to get into some of the revolutionary aspects of bolton both as a player and as a person yeah the, the politics are really where you, where you get a lot of the interesting stuff of walton because walton of course on the court is always the idea of oh man if he was healthy or oh man what could have happened or what could have been or whatever but uh as a you know kind of a political figure at least a, a, a social figure i mean he was a big deal in in, in the mid 70s i mean he took tons of media criticism uh for his uh, politics and his lifestyle uh particularly before that team won the 1977 you know finals he was just really looked at as as you know sports illustrated 1976 is a great quote uh walton was seen as a doped up whack out weirdo commie loving acid freak hippie with lice in his hair and patty Hearst's phone number in his date book which we'll get to in a bit but that patty Hearst line is a nice zinger for the mid <laughs> 70s so you might not know exactly what that's about but we'll get to it here in a sec uh walton was uh, he was famously anti-establishment and he was a politically active off the court uh, he was arrested multiple times at anti-war protests he spoke out against richard nixon and the fbi um a New York Times profile uh, basically said he, you know, quoted him as he's saying no one over 35 should be president and that blacks had been oppressed uh, by white Americans for so long that they had every right to shoot them. So uh, a lot of real interesting stuff. He criticized the national anthem among a multitude of other more or less cherished things and started getting hate mail. And, and thankfully, our country in 2016 does not, you know, care all that much about what people do during the national anthem. And we've 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 moved on from that. So it's, it's a good thing that now, you know, Thank Walton, after after Walton got out of the people's system, they said, you know, yeah, it, it's just a song. You know, it doesn't represent one type of people. This is good, you know. You, however, you're attached to that song, be attached to it. That's fine. It's, it's real glad that I'm glad that they, you know, we can do that now. But uh, yes, the connection with Patty Hearst. You're probably wondering what uh, for people that don't know who Patty Hearst is. Uh, it's pretty easy to figure out some kind of background information on her. We're just going to talk about sort of what happened to her and in connection with uh, Walton. But uh, on February 4th, 1974, uh, Patty Hearst, who was the daughter of William Hearst, the obviously the media yeah, mogul, the granddaughter, but yeah. Oh, granddaughter, right? Yeah, because the daughter would have been pretty, <laughs> pretty old at this point. But uh, granddaughter. So, uh, yeah, February fourth, uh, uh, nineteen seventy-four, a band of ragtag revolutionaries calling them the uh, Simonese uh, Liberation Army burst into her apartment. She was nineteen at the time. She was living in Berkeley, California, uh, and dragged her away. Uh, two months after her abduction, she announced it to a stunned public that she had joined the group and taken the name Tynia. Is it Tynia? I never. I think it's Tynia, right? I thought it was Tanya, but I'm not positive. Tanya, whatever. Either one. <laughs> That's what she took. Uh, so yeah. Or, her plight over the next year and a half became a mammoth rolling endless media event because she really in a lot of ways, I mean, she, she went and robbing banks and was just getting into a bunch of trouble. And people just wondered if she had been brainwashed, that this was actually what she wanted to do. It, it just a real big stuff. I mean, you could, you can look, there's, there's many different, I think there's a few different books that, that there was one that I read many, many years ago about it. That, that's super interesting as well, but just, yeah, she's just a crazy weird time for, for the Hearst family and for her in particular, but uh, Walton and his, uh, his later wife, Susie, uh, they were living in Portland when the uh, when the radical activists and friends Jack and Mickey Scott uh, appeared at their home. Jack Scott, whom uh, Walton once described as the most beautiful human being I have ever met, told them that he had been carting Patty Hearst around the country and that the heat was on from the FBI. So uh, when Walton was questioned by the FBI, he drove to Port, uh, uh, from Portland to San Francisco for the meeting with the FBI. Uh, news reports noted that he had uh, once been arrested for participating in the anti-war sit-in and had made anti-American statements about being overpaid by the trailblazers. Uh, and Walton from the beginning said that he 
knew nothing about her swear about just he knew that little quote from from scott so yeah. oh um, I, I just want to mention the uh the accounts of, there's a good account of this from oregon live where we, we, mm-hmm. we took some of the notes from um that about uh you know why patty hearst deal and why it's it, walt well, it was linked to it so it, it's a it's a good right. read for anyone who uh will put it at the end of the show notes Absolutely. Uh, in spring 1975, uh, Walton appeared at a press conference with Jack Scott. Walton was just, uh, to describe the FBI, which had also questioned him in the Hearst case, as the enemy and to call for the rejection of the U.S. government. Uh, <laughs> according to Breaks of the Game, Walton's home in the late 70s was considered a center of activity among counterculture figures at the time. Uh, Walton later split with Jack Scott around the same time that Walton decided he wanted to leave the Blazers uh, and charge the medical staff and trainers with malpractice. So he kind of got into some more of his like personal stuff that he was kind of trying to get through and less, you know, worrying about the, the, the kind of revolution going on uh, in the 70s and, and with Jack Scott and all those people as well. But yeah, so that's his, 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 you know, not exactly, you know, primarily linked to Patty Hearst, but at least some stuff going on with, you know, people that knew Patty Hearst yeah. or at least had some connections to her and Bill Walton. So not necessarily a direct connection between the two, but still very interesting uh, how their paths did cross. Yeah, I mean, he, he certainly got chance and, you know, ridiculed for his association with the Jack Scott and, and all that stuff. I mean, that was obviously a big part of what was going on in the culture and how, and how he was thought of at the uh, time so um so his his lifestyle um he was known for his beard and his long hair he says he was the first nba player with a ponytail uh loved the grateful dead was staunchly anti-capitalist outspoken vegetarian loved the outdoors and riding his bike he lived in a commune he smoked marijuana in fact he even reportedly sought and received permission from john wooden to smoke after games during his senior season um wore flannel shirts and multicolored headbands towed his gym clothes in an onion bag so we're just a guy who was um out there in terms of his personal style just very different from what athletes were expected to look like even at this point in the mid 70s where obviously the the, the way people looked had changed awfully uh differently from the you know conservative early 60s into the um in the mid-1970s as we talked about some of the media criticism, Time magazine described him as an enigmatic booty man, uh, called him a bitter critic of U.S. society. I don't believe in capitalism, he said when he signed his pro contract. I believe wealth should be sp- spread around. It pointed out that his, well, his deal gave him $2.5 million. Um, he also, um, a- a- an SI article from 78, sort of uh, getting into the issues he'd had with the Portland medical staff, said that because he didn't believe in the use of painkilling drugs, he was called a malingerer, also criticized for his radical politics and his counterculture lifestyle. Um, everything from his clothing to his hairstyle to his diet was harpooned. I've been accused of being a communist, hiding Patty Hearst and taking LSD before a game, he said. Um, he also famously shunned reporters, especially local ones, um, and only spoke to reporters who would present him favorably. Later, he said a lot of the aloofness or unwillingness to talk was due to a speech impediment, which he would later uh, get successful therapy for. And, of course, now the fact that he became you know, a successful broadcaster for so long um, you know, speaks to the dramatic change that he was able to have because of that. And there's a, a uh, there's a funny anecdote from Breaks to the Game where Walton refused to give the, Bla- the Blazers publicity man his phone number, which created head- head- of journalism because all the time he would get phone calls and he would have to admit i don't have his phone number the quote from his the, the man john white was every radical and subversive in america has his number and i don't <laughs> 
That's awesome. But uh, getting back to, you know, Walton on, on the court, uh, you know, he was just a super revolutionary player uh, because, you know, he could just really do it all on the court. And we mentioned that, you know, at the top of the show of that he just kind of he was a smart player, knew where to be at all times. It was just really good at all different assets, uh, you know, facets of the game. And uh, uh, his stats from 75 to 78 is, you know, arguable healthy prime. Uh, 17.1 points per game, 13.5 rebounds per game, 4.4 assists per game, one steal per game, 2.6 blocks per game, uh, 22.1 PER, uh, 20.7 total rebound percentage, uh, 19.3 assists per, uh, per game percentage, um, uh, four, uh, 20, 24.5 uh, usage rate, 26 win shares, 0.178 win shares per 48, uh, 6.0 box plus minus, and a 14.2 uh, value over replacement player. All those are really, I mean, they're, they're pretty stellar numbers across the board. You know, not, you know, maybe not all-time great, you, you know, in that sense, but really just the versatility. It just, just really jumps out at you. And the one that I really caught was the 4.4 assist per game, which might seem kind of meager, uh, but when you look at it, only, there are only three centers all-time who average four-plus assists per game throughout their career, and it's Wilt, Bill Russell, uh, Bill Russell and Alvin Adams are the only three ever to do that. So you really look at that and forces per game, you know, it might seem like not that big of a deal, but for centers, that's a big deal. You know, usually when the ball gets to a center or a big man, he, you know, turns around and puts it in the basket. They're very rarely the centers are there to kind of pass around and do all that sort of stuff. So it's, it's interesting to see um, that, you know, he was on that level, at least for a little bit part of his career. Yeah, And, um, and, and like Russell was running the offense a lot as well, you know, was. Yeah, exactly. I mean, but the ball went to him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, basketball, uh, in a lot of ways, was a liberation to Walton. Uh, he knew how to funnel his ego into the game itself. Uh, he was always in the right place and took so much pleasure in, in just kind of playing the game. Uh, the problem, though, is he was obsessed with basketball. He just really couldn't ever let it go. Uh, he was, you know, super com uh, competitive. He hated playing subpar competition, uh, and he was hard to motivate because of that. You know, practices, I don't think, did a whole lot for him. He just really wanted to play games and then beat people and do that sort of stuff. Uh, he considered creating his own semi-pro team, but he wanted the best competition in the NBA, uh, even though he said he hated the business. So he was always kind of conflicted in that where, you know, he wanted to be in the elite level of basketball and play against elite level players, but just hated the, the fact that the NBA had become that big business or whatever. Um, and uh, Walton's high school coach, uh, he thought that his shyness drove his love of passing, which, again, we mentioned again with the, the 4.4 uh, points per game. And now uh, Jack Ramsey, you know, his famous head coach, uh, had a really nice connection with Bill Walton. They just, as you said at the top of the show, they really just understood one another. Uh, and this is Ramsey talking about Bill Walton. There was always a rhythm to his game. Uh, it was always the right rhythm. Felt Walton had a great uh, concept of the game and great intelligence. With him, they always knew they could do it as a team. No one understands the game the way he does. And they both had an idealism uh, about the game and, and just believed in its artistry like it was ballet and just really were just staunch competitors as well. So those two, I mean, you really do you do feel for the fact that Walton did get hurt and those two just couldn't have like a 10 year run or, you know, sort of a Popovich Duncan run because you felt like that could have been that way where they were on the exact same wavelength, but obviously injuries and, and, you know, struggles with the franchise got in the way of that. But yeah, you really do wish that's, that's one thing that I really would have loved is, is those two just being linked together for, you know, 15 years or something like that would have been really awesome. But yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And they both had a similar, you know, they both had the similar idealism, but they also had the similar obsession about the game, you know, they, mm -hmm. very much, uh, you know, of two minds of that, which, you know, was one aspect where you know, maybe that led to that split apart, you know, it, of course, the injuries were the primary thing, but also a little bit of that. Maybe they were almost too much like where that kind of created some issues, um, you know, the, the little bit of a split uh, there. So how revolutionary was Walton's team? They were um, they were only rather pedestrian, 49 and 33 and tied for fourth um, that season, the 77 season. There are five teams in the league that had between 40 and 50 wins and we're, number, we're first in the league in SRS, 5.39, which is you know no, nothing 
normally special, but considering if you consider how they were this season and how they were in the 78 season and um, I consider how they played with Walton in the lineup in the in the 77 season, they were 44 and 21 and uh, they had a 67 uh, percent winning percentage, which would have been best in the league. So w- with Walton in the lineup, when they were healthy, they were absolutely a dominant team and really the, one of very few dominant teams in that post merger um morass in that maybe we've talked about how you know there just weren't any teams that were um really really great or really bad during them that was a very much an era of parody so they, they were the kind of the one team that sort of was able to stand out during that time when walton was healthy but um they'd fired lenny wilkins the previous year and hired jack ramsey uh they uh they added maurice lucas dave Twardzig, herm gilliam and johnny davis um and uh, once they started to have a great deal of success, they uh, it was Blazermania was uh, the phenomenon that was called, and games became cultural events in the cities. They would show closed circuit, circuit versions at a local theater. Uh, they would sell out routinely for years afterward. They would sell out routinely, and fans would leave gifts on Walton's porch and would follow him on his biking route to the game. Uh, the key players uh, alongside of Walton Maurice Lucas the really the perfect complement to Walton just a big strong enforcer also a good shooter and really drew the attention and the heat away from Walton would be booed at away games and would just serve um to fill all the things that Walton wasn't good at. I mean, he, Lucas was great at everything, and they just um, they meshed together so well. And, and, and personality-wise, there's a good uh, story in uh, Lucas or excuse me, in Walton's book where the first time they meet, uh, Lucas squeezes Walton's hand hard and he says, "We're gonna win the NBA championship," and then they'll pause this year and Walton thought yeah there's no way he's crazy he's just been through these two years in Portland and they were kind of a mess and he just didn't think that there was any chance of that happening and of course they end up doing it and uh, other key players uh, Lionel Hollins of course now the famous coach he was a dynamic fast guard um and uh, Bob Gross, who his numbers were unimpressive, but he was considered one of the best small forwards in the league just with his ability to move without the ball, great court vision and passing and defense. Uh, Dave Twardzig, who was kind of a relic of the 50s in terms of his uh, personal style, but was a really great high shooting guard. He shot 61% as a guard for um, that season uh, to, to 10 points per game. So, you know, pretty good production coming off the bench. Uh, Larry Steele, who was known for diving for loose balls, survivor in Portland over several regimes. Um, he and Walton didn't really get along all that well. He kind of felt that Walton looked down at his skills. Um, and in terms of, you know, Ramsey was a guy who valued speed and quickness, remade the team around his philosophy and Walton's skills, uh, molded the crew into a rebounding and running package that thrilled the Portland crowds. And also he had his assistant, Jack McKinney, who would later become the initial architect of the uh, Lakers uh, showtime uh, years before. Unfortunately, he had a bicycle accident that um, caused him to uh, miss a significant amount of time and ended up being replaced by Paul Westhead. Absolutely. And now uh, we'll get into a little bit of uh, the highlights uh, of the Blazers, you know, their playoff runs uh, throughout this time. Uh, the first one we're going to bring up. Uh, so 1977, uh, the Bulls, of course, had Artis Gilmore. I uh, still had Norm Van Leer and Tom Borwinkle from the early 70s. And they had added uh, Mickey Johnson and Jack Marin. Uh, just a, a pretty solid team. They won uh, 44 games that year. Uh, but it was after a 2-14 and 14 start and a 13-game losing streak that year as well. So they, they started off real, real bad. And then they went 20-4 uh, and four, uh, to end the season. Uh, and they also had their, uh, you know, a huge jump in fan support at the time because the Bulls were basically just a dead franchise before really this season. Um, 
And this was actually interesting as well because the Blazers, of course, led by you know Bill Walton and the Bulls led by Artis Gilmore. Uh, this was a rematch of uh, 1970, the NCAA title game, which uh, saw Walton's uh, UCLA team beat Artis Gilmore's Jacksonville team, which is a very odd team to be in the NCAA finals. But when you have Artis Gilmore, I guess it's a little bit easier. But yeah, so they beat uh, Jacksonville to win the NCAA title uh, in 1970s. Uh, this game, you know, not known for or this series rather is known for you know, some some oddities as well because there was a referee strike going on during the time, so they used replacement refs. Uh, Morris Lucas uh, was not very happy about that. So, he, uh, you know, there was many times where he got frustrated. Players were just frustrated throughout these, but Lucas in particular, uh, he got a second tech in uh, technical foul in game one. Uh, he strided towards the ref, grabbed his whistle and break, uh, broke the lanyard of the whistle. Uh, the ref backed down and then didn't call the technical. <laughs> so that, that's that's uh, I don't know if that sets a great precedent. But uh, <laughs> anyway, that's for plays refs. Um, and then uh, both Walton and Gilmore described uh, the game two as uh, the wildest of their careers right before the half. There was a little skirmish between uh, Wilbur Holland of the Bulls and Herm Gilliam of the Portland Trailblazers. Morris Lucas jumped in the middle of it all, and quickly this altercation was blowing up into a real bare knuckles fight. Uh, Bulls assistant coach Gene uh, Torm- uh, Tormo Helen, uh, Tormo Helen, uh, whatever, uh, was trying to pull off Gilliam uh, with his hands around uh, Gilliam's neck, and then Lucas punched him. So as you can tell, <laughs> Morris Lucas liked to get in fights, which we talked about during the breaks of the game. He was he, he liked to get in them and end them and and do all that sort of stuff. But yeah, he uh, he decked a. Uh, a assistant coach which that's that's not great so you don't want that yeah um I, one question quickly H- had yeah. you heard of that had you heard of that season as a bulls fan where they you know finished 20 and 4 to end the season and um because that apparently was a big deal at the time it kind of rallied the city and it got them uh really some crazy crowds and it was right around the time and where um the mayor had died and it was kind of like one of those things that kind of rallied mm-hmm. the city around that so i, I had I, I read what's happening um where they talk about that you know it's mostly about the sonics but they kind of get into that a little bit as well which i thought was interesting because uh, it was something that had i hadn't really heard about yeah, no, I thought mostly it was that early 70s Bulls team that really got people going, you know, that 73-74 team. I remember that, you know, that made, I thought that was always considered the team, you know, with Dick yeah. Mata and, uh, at the helm, you know, starting. I thought that was always the, you know, the Bob Love era, and that's the one yeah. was the one where everybody started to say, hey, we like the Bulls. But, yeah, it was kind of interesting to see in, in, in different things that we researched that this was a team. I'll have to ask, you know, my dad or something like that to see what, right. what if he remembers that in particular, because I had always thought that it was, yeah, again, that early 70s team that really reinvigorated them, uh, and then it kind of went through the 70s with, with the Bulls still being, you know, a decent thing, and then the 80s would of course have uh not so great stuff until uh you know a little bit mid-decade but yeah i don't know i I hadn't heard that that was such a big deal but i I think it was short-lived but it was interesting to see how they ended up finishing that season and you know they they obviously starting Mm -hmm. two and 14 and finishing 20 and 4 is a is quite a dichotomy so 1977, the Blazers uh, defeated the Nuggets four games to two. Uh, this is the Nuggets team. They had David Thompson, uh, Dan Issel, Bobby Jones, because, uh, you know, Issel was great at transition and great at drawing fouls. So uh, Walton had, had, had you know, had a, had a little tough matchup with Dan Issel. He was a fantastic player, and we've talked about many times uh, during this series as well, a guy who really just kind of gets underlooked or underrated uh, as being an all-time great. Uh, game one, uh, Maurice Lucas uh, broke a play to uh, back his man down, shot over him and score from the low post for the game winner at Denver. Uh, Ramsey later complained to Luke about it. Uh, come on. Jack we won the game so that was uh, uh, interesting that there was you know Ramsey again he was yeah. a guy who, who kind of wanted stuff his way and, and you know he wanted to win he wanted to be a competitor but he wanted guys to you know listen and kind of do 
a lot of what he wanted to, so it's an interesting uh, thing there. Uh, Twarjek was hurt in the series. Uh, Johnny Davis, who was at that time a 20-year-old quiet rookie, uh, was put in at Walton's suggestion over Ramsey's preference as Larry Steele, and uh, that's the worst idea I think I ever that heard. That was what Walton <laughs> said, right. When, yeah. uh, when, when Ramsey wanted Larry Steele, uh, Walton said that's the worst idea I think ever heard. Yeah, right, so. which speaks to your point that you meant earlier, that Larry Steele didn't really like follow Bill Walton that much because he felt that you know Bill Walton didn't respect his skills as well. But uh, it was definitely a close series as well. Uh, Portland won game one by one point and game three by four points but still you know got through it and then uh blazers four lakers zero this is of course 1990 uh, 1977 rather uh, walton versus kareem uh the lakers though are incredibly shorthanded with kermit washington out and uh, lucius allen was hobbled uh hollins and davis harassed the overmatched lakers guards for lots of steals and fast break opportunities throughout uh herm gilliam he came off the bench to spark the blazers uh, to close uh, to a close win uh in los angeles for game two and then walton uh, punctuates the win in game four with a dunk over kareem heading in there was talk about the second coming of russell versus wilt but the series kind of disappoints uh we'll have a lot more about this rivalry or what and whatnot in future shows because we're going to talk a little bit about uh, these two uh in a little bit more detail later but yeah it was just an interesting um you know the first uh you, you know you get walton versus cream kind of think it's a big deal but yeah the blazers kind of destroy the lakers uh, you know four games to zero so you kind of lose that a little bit so yeah um, so uh, looking at the finals, which the Blazers famously won uh, four games to two over the uh, 76ers, Dr. J and um, uh, lots of characters on the uh, on the Sixers team, as we've talked about in other shows. Uh, the Sixers actually won big in the first two games. And then in game two, a big brawl. With, it starts with uh, Lloyd Neal and George McGinnis squaring off. And then um, Lucas and Irving trade elbows. Finally, it, it's really prompted by... Uh, uh, Gross and Daryl Dawkins uh, having a tug of war over rebound and uh, they start punching um, and Dawkins actually ends up knocking Doug Collins instead of Gross. Um, then uh, Lucas goes after Dawkins with a shot from behind and then both, both benches clear and everyone's involved. It's, it's this big mess, of course, it, it, you know, in, in a finals game. The fact that this happened is, is pretty crazy. And uh, Collins needed four uh, stitches. Lucas and Dawkins were rejected and they were each fined $2,500 each, which uh, was one of the first major financial um, fines for fighting. It was right around a time which they started cracking down on it seriously. Uh, then Portland turned around and won big uh, game three and four in Portland. Uh, Lucas, uh, before game three, he walked right to the Philly bench and then started everybody, including Dawkins, by sticking out his hand for uh, a handshake. Um, and then it, it, that kind of threw off the Sixers and um, tried to, and, you know, kind of got, got in their head a little bit because it was just sort of like an odd like what is he doing kind of thing um so they changed their strategy against uh, dr j they, they were trying to force him left which is where he usually would go but that kept walton at an angle that was too far away to help so they switched to letting him drive right and that um gave walton an ability to uh you know get it at a at a better angle and defend better also uh bobby gross they had him just run and run and run to try to tire uh, irving out and walton said that he felt gross outplayed dr j in the series um moving without the ball and setting a record for a field goal percentage Although Irving had quite an outstanding series production-wise, so you, that might uh, give you, you know, uh, some <laughs> we'll pause there. But that, hey. I'm not going to argue with Bill Walton. Um, no. And uh, uh, George McGinnis, he was six of 16 of 48 in the first four games. He said, I feel like a blind man searching for the men's room. So <laughs> uh, game five was more of a it was a physical slog early. Uh, the Sixers tried to impose their will, but eventually the Blazers got their running game going and uh, they were up 91 69 with a little more than eight minutes left in the game. Then the Sixers had a huge rally. They got to. Uh, they made it close at the end, but they ended up losing 110 to uh, 104. 
And uh, Irving scored 37 points and felt distraught afterward. He said, I had a good feeling about tonight. It all backfired. It's a bad scene. So so things went bad in Philly. And then back in Portland for game six, just a crazy atmosphere. The Blazers have 5,000 fans waiting to greet them at 4.30 in the morning when they get home. Um, and Portland had another pretty big lead in the fourth quarter, six minutes left. Uh, the Sixers made another run, were able to uh, trim it to three after um, – Irving made he uh, he he made a long jump shot and then later two foul shots. Uh, Lucas then got a free throw to get to four. McGinnis actually hit a jumper finally uh, and and two points with 18 seconds left. Uh, McGinnis actually forced a jump ball from Gross and uh, Irving got a jumper in the lane but it was no good. Free got the ball and lofted a baseline shot again no good and then McGinnis got a shot off with a with a second left and that was it. Uh, they were unable to get it going uh, Walton in the uh, game had 20 points 23 rebounds eight block shots five assists he knocked the loose ball at the end just to be sure then ripped off his drenched jersey and hurled it into the crowd um, meanwhile Irving had 40 points eight assists six rebounds and two steals so great line for him even in a loss um, and apparently 96% of Portland TVs uh, had, were on during uh, the game six that's, that's obviously uh, pretty present. That's insane. Yeah. <laughs> I mean when when people talk about that team being like so you know linked to that city as well I mean that fact right there all you have to look at i mean breaks of the game talks about it as well it was just a crazed crazed portland for their trailblazers and that's just that that fact alone is just absolutely insane. and, and that you know continued through the 78 season where the blazers had a 15 and 10 start and it was like they were on their way to another great team uh you know another great championship run before walton's injury changed the course of things which will yeah after the break uh will our previously recorded episode uh will uh, get into uh you can uh uh, check it out. You're listening to a conversation with uh, Rich and I, along with uh, Curtis Harris of uh, Pro Hoops History and uh, James of NBA Injury Report. Hi, this is Jason. Before we get to our discussion of breaks of the game, I'd like to tell you about our fellow Harvard Paroxysm Network podcast. Fast Break Breakfast is a podcast for serious NBA fans that is incredibly not serious. If you watch League Pass every night but aren't listening, you are missing out. Fast Break Breakfast is what happens when you get two musicians and a comic who are overeducated, underemployed, but share an obsession about the NBA, 90s movies, and conspiracy theories. So make sure you subscribe to Fast Break Breakfast, a podcast for serious NBA fans that is incredibly not serious. Also, you can find all of the HP Network podcasts, including Over and Back, in one feed on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts by searching for Hardwood Paroxysm. And now, enjoy the rest of the show. So um, kind of getting into some of the key personalities of the book, um, I, I, I think the central figure is uh, Bill Walton, who um, was, of course, the, the centerpiece of that Trailblazers team. Just, you know, an incredible center with uh, superbly skilled but dealt with injuries um, throughout most of his career that really prevented him from, you know, reaching even, um, you know, um, a percentage of really what he could other than a couple of um, great seasons and then kind of a late uh, rebirth with the Celtics as a role player, you know, just d- didn't have, you know, what he could, but just, you know, the incredible court vision, the passing, the shot blocking, you know, playmaking was just a, you know, for a brief time was arguably maybe the best center um, in the NBA. I-, I think the way that it kind of portrays him relating to his teammates and the way that it kind of portrays the locker room dynamics of um jack Rams, jack ramsey being you know pretty stern you know kind of being a taskmaster yet 
in subtle ways, you know, seeding things to Walton and how that kind of drove a wedge between um, Walton and the team and then sort of led to, um, you know, once Walton felt betrayed by the medical staff and feeling questioned by teammates leading to him, you know, driving a wedge uh, between those guys. So, um, Kurt, I'll start with you. What do you what did you kind of think about um, the way that Walton was portrayed here? I find Walton's story pretty interesting just because, um, like you said, he's this is guy that's, you know, very liberal, uh, the hippie, long hair, still goes to Grateful Dead concerts. Um, but, you know, it's, it's this free-spirited guy, but he's clearly got all this talent, and he's the best player on the team. So uh, it's like this, you get this kind of expectation and swagger when you're the best player on the team, like things are going to be run your way. Uh, which that kind of runs counter to being a hippie and a you know the, the free spirited type that you want everybody to fall in line and what you're what you're doing. Um, so I think that might be kind of like the uh, the starting point for his like friction with the teammates because after he got the injury, the teammates were ready to like pounce and say like, well, you know, uh, is he faking it or is it not that bad or should he be out there playing? Why isn't he like toughing it out or anything like that? Um, so I think that 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 left this idea of him, what he wanted to see himself as, ran counter to the talent that he had. And his teammates, you know, were just, as I said, just quick to pick up on this fact that he wasn't, um, it's just this complex thing. I, I'm having a hard time ex- expressing it, but um, yeah, like it's, it's just the, the amount of talent that he had and his left this idea is just, I, I feel like there's just like intrinsic conflict between those two things. Like if you're that talented, you can't be like egalitarian on a basketball court to the, to purest degree and have everybody follow line and love you, especially when your foot gets hurt, you can't play anymore. And uh, the, the thing just, just falls apart as it did in the book. Yeah. Walton's story for me was just like, it was just super dark. Like he had to wind up. <laughs> I mean, obviously the career cut short is the obvious thing, but then um, he had to like basically go against everything that he purportedly stood for at some point. Like there's the whole part about how he didn't want to take shots he thought it was, you know, betraying, like, the, you know, the signals that his body was telling him, you know, which is true. You're in pain. Your body's telling you to stop. Um, so he didn't want to do that. Once of doing that, um, the whole he becomes a born again capitalist thing was like super dark. Like he, he like how much was he like searching for, you know, some meaning in life that maybe had been stripped from him when, you know, because uh, he'd already been suffering with his foot injuries for a while. And they have this whole section about how he goes to San Diego and starts wearing suits and talking about being a capitalist and uh, on a very minor level having to ditch his beloved vegetarianism to gain some weight to put on muscle was I thought a little sad as well so it really like ran the gamut of like things he had to give up in order to like pursue this one dream of his which I guess was partially why Jack Ramsey loved him so much because that I mean this is I don't know there was a lot of dark themes in this like but I thought one of the starkest ones was just like the emotional toll of, you know, what it takes to be great. And Jack Ramsey talking about how he wants people who are single-mindedly, you know, focused on on basketball. And from a caring about these people's like soul perspective, maybe not the, you know, uh, best approach to take. But if you want the most successful team, like maybe it is. And what does that say about just like what it means to be successful in any endeavor? But, you know, specifically sports in this case. So... Yeah, I thought there was sadness. There was a deep <laughs> sadness imbued throughout the entire book, I thought. Bitter, yeah, yeah Walt, Walt was an interesting character for me because there were points, in, and I don't know if you guys sort of got this vibe, and I'm, I'm sure we're, we're, you know, throughout the book, there's times where you sort of really feel bad for him and other times where you don't, and then it, it's very weird, whereas a lot of the guys, I sort of 
pretty early in their their chapter, whatever their section rather, sort of decide, hey, I really like this guy, or hey, you know, this isn't really my type of guy, or whatever. You know what I mean? Whereas Bill Walton is a guy who the, throughout, like, I'll read one page and be like, oh, you know, he sounds like a really cool dude, and really, and then like the next page, that you know, something will happen, like the boarding and capitalism thing, or you sort of see that he's being, uh, you know, hypocritical as far as how this goes, and he's very weird for me. I never could quite find a. a, a you know, when it was over, I couldn't really reconcile myself with, okay, do, do I really think Bill Walton's a good guy or a bad guy? Like, I, I still don't even know if I know that. And, like, I think deep down he's a good guy, but he did weird stuff throughout. It, it was – he was just a, a weird character. I think most others in this book I was able to very easily say, okay, I really enjoy this guy. I like this guy. And most I did like. I mean, there's very few people in this book that I think I, like, kind of give an eye roll to or anything like that. But he, he was one that I, I don't quite know. And I'm not sure if, if, if you know, David, that was his – his goal is to make him sort of a conflicted character or what, but, but I, I at least got that vibe. I don't know if anybody else sort of picked up on that either. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, you, you definitely kind of see like the conflict. Like I, I thought it was interesting how, you know, there, there was sort of the stuff where you tries to be of the team and be part of the team and, and, and be friendly, but he's also like ribbing guys who are like clearly like way inferior players and just kind of like almost picking on them just because he could just mm-hmm. kind of being a bully, which I thought was ir- ironic because at the end of the book, um, there's a story about um, they're they're at a Clippers game and they're having like a you know like a fan costume contest. It's around Halloween, I guess. And then there's a fan who dresses up like you know like as Walton, but like in a cast and having some sort of like some sort of sign making fun of him, and then. Like he ends up um, winning that contest and, you know, the, the crowd's like laughing and Walton is at the game in, in a suit and just really embarrassed. But I thought like that was just a little bit of, of karma for the way that like Walton had treated other guys during the game. And, and you know, I think, you know, Walton's definitely a, a, a complex guy. I mean, you know, most of us are, you know, somewhat good and somewhat bad. So um it, it makes sense that he'd be there. I, I think the, the the two things that I thought were kind of stood out as, as being interesting for me is when it talked about like his, um, uh, you know, game day preparation where like hours in, like he would like, he would listen to the dead and he would like actually like picture like actions in the game in his head and, you know, and what he would do in certain things, like when he would make the pass or when he would cut to the basket or, or, or whatever. And that reminds me a lot of, I, I also, for people who don't know, I also do a podcast about Alfred Hitchcock films called the Alfred Hitchcock, Alfred Hitchcast. And it reminds me of Hitchcock's approach of like, um, basically, um, scripting out every single action, you know, in his head and putting it on the page to where, you know, the, the actual filming of the, of the movie, he already knew everything was going to be happening ahead of time because he had, you know, basically all drawn out. It, it kind of reminded me of, um, of that and just kind of shows like the level of basketball genius that Walton was to be able to you know, just kind of see things, um, that way. And then, and then another thing that was, I thought was kind of funny was, which shows sort of the competitive edge for him and, and just, uh, the, the hippie stuff is at, days after winning the championship in 77, he ends up playing a pickup game on an Indian reservation against a team led by Phil Jackson. It just this casual thing, but he's like playing it like it's, you know, game seven of the championship. I mean, he's, he's out there and he, and he, he you know, he still like has that huge competitive drive, even in that environment and, you know, hanging out with Phil Jackson in 1977 seems like a, you know, <laughs> interesting situation. So <laughs> Uh, man, but yeah, Rich, you were talking about you know how you didn't know what to think about Walton, and I think th- I'm like, well, maybe he's just the most well drawn character in the book. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe him or Ramsey, maybe because like most people, like if you really know everyone's 
you know, <laughs> deepest thoughts and what they've done right and wrong throughout their life. Like you, you are going to be conflicted. Like it's hard to say someone is like sure. good or bad unless they're you know the obvious markers in history of like dictators and stuff like that. So obviously we weren't there, but it's hard to kind of see where at the point like Walton is culpable for. I mean, obviously he's you know he's responsible for his own actions and he apparently approved all the um you know the painkillers and the medical treatment that they were giving him um but at the same time i mean i I think this book does a nice job of pointing out the pressures that he felt in that situation and and like the the way that maybe you know just the conflict that a team doctor or team trainers would have being more loyal to the team than than loyal to the um than than loyal to the player Mm-hmm. that's a huge issue like as you're just mentioning that i was thinking like just the phrase you know conflict of interest it's like you're a, the team's medical doctor and you're as just a pure doctor or a medical you know professional you're supposed to uh do what's best for the patient but if you're getting paid by the team you know you, you you're your other, your other job is make sure that those players are ready to go out there and perform for the team so if you don't do that in the team's mindset uh, you're not gonna be the doctor for too much longer so um yeah, that's obviously still a problem in the NBA, but really a huge problem in the NFL, as we all know. But um, yeah, Walton definitely is the case of that. You know, he it's, it's really hard to say whether he or when he should have had his foot surgery at the, um, and should have got that taken care of. But you know, the doctor he had the conflict of interest too. He had to keep his job and get Walton healthy to play for the team. Otherwise, he was going to be out of there, uh, or as close to healthy as possible, I guess we can say, or else he was going to be out of there. Sure. And it's possible to, you know, to care about both the players and the team. And it's obviously just, I mean, it just creates the situation. Even if you're doing it well, you're just facing that, those tensions and um, yeah, conflict of interest is exactly right. Um, uh, You know, the other, um, I guess the biggest star of that, uh, you know, those late seventies Blazers teams was uh, Maurice Lucas, uh, who uh, came from the uh, ABA to immediately um, lead that uh, Blazers championship team along with Walton. I, I thought it was interesting how it talked about the the two of them um, sort of managing to divide their turf before the uh, title season. You know, Lucas kind of serving as the enforcer for Walton and sort of filling in some of the gaps of, you know, toughness and rebounding and, um you know, the, the things that Walton wasn't necessarily as good at, Lucas, you know, was there to absolutely, um, you know, be basically the perfect complement to him. And um, and uh, Halberstam describes him as, and I'll quote, um, very black, very articulate, very political, a strong and independent man sprung from circumstances that could be could also create great insecurity. And and that, that's sort of what he's going through during this season. I mean, he is been underpaid relative to his talent for several seasons, you know, signed a deal coming out of the ABA that, you know, what was not a smart long term deal. In fact, the Blazers were, you know, sort of. um you know, almost uh, forerunners for kind of the strategy of um, signing players to um, long-term contracts, but for relatively low money. And then only the first couple years of that being guaranteed. So basically they were, you know, completely in favor of, you know, um, team contracts. So, you know, he's unhappy with his salary and he's totally willing to push the boundaries of the team, particularly with Ramsey and with, uh, management and um you know it, it kind of creates a uh a difficult situation for the for the team to be under and certainly one difficult one for him to be under as well and he's he's constantly under trade rumors as well so that's kind of you know the the, the tension that's going on during the season 
what do you guys make of um you know Weinberg in general I mean I'm thinking about it as it relates to you know Lucas and like his contract because they, they make a big deal out of he, he you know he refuses to renegotiate and he says well I've never done that in my other business um, do you think Halberstam um, do you think he's taken him at his word or does he think that he just knows he can get away with it so like you know what I'm saying like he claims this is principled stance but isn't it kind of easier in some ways to just see like, well, if he thinks he can get away with not paying them more money, that's what he's going to do. Cause he's a businessman. Yeah. I took it as purely just a business. Like, you know, we, we just don't want to set the precedent or we don't want to, um, you know, it doesn't matter. That's not fair. That's the contract you agreed to. And that's the one that we're going to do. You know, I, I didn't really see it as much more than that. I, I saw it as something he could get away with as an owner. Um, and, and wasn't necessarily like, compromising his co- moral code or anything like that so i thought that I, I, that's kind of wh- where i stood on it okay it just seemed to me like um he, they were like he was trying to make it almost like a moral stand like this is just how i conduct business where like i don't think he really believed that i don't know i like I, i'm very distrustful of anyone who can rise to that level of power and like <laughs> the motives behind anything that they say so, you know, if it's going to benefit his pocket, then he's going to say that where, you know, I don't know. Like, that's an easy thing. I, I just couldn't tell if if the author of, of our tale believed him or not. Um, yeah, and, and that becomes a problem, I think, in general. It's one of my biggest issues with the book is I, I sort of feel like he's always almost more on the side of – and that's, to be fair, I, mean, I think that's not really a you know, hot take, that he's more on the side of the management and more on the side of the coaches and that sort of stuff and less on the players. So, yeah, as far as the story of Lucas and, and those contract negotiations whatever – I, I always kind of take it for because it's hard to know who's giving him the most access because and and that's the thing that if you're you know it for people who do any sort of journalism you always tend to sort of be you know pulled in both directions you know potentially if, if you're looking on a story like that and maybe you know who's ever giving you a little bit more you know or making it easier your job easier or whatever might get a little more beneficial but I always felt throughout the book and especially I think uh, this Lucas situation I felt like he always sort of seem to sort of paint Lucas and, and, and Weinberg in their sort or uh, uh, Lucas, um, you know, in his little camp and, and his way and then sort of Weinberg and the other guys in, in there. I, I, I don't know. I, I'm sort of I, I didn't I, when it was over, I still quite wasn't sure where I stood in terms of that. Mm-hmm. you know negotiations and, and who was in the right who was in the wrong or or if both were right both were right you know what i mean there's there's a lot more to it obviously but yeah i always sort of felt like you know Havisham was sort of more pro management pro coaches less you know anti not anti-player but more of the pro coaches more pro management but mm-hmm. that's at least and and i think you get that throughout the book uh i, I feel like it, lucas was um in the 1977 finals i think his role wasn't quite I don't, I don't think it was explained in a in a completely like thoughtful manner, and not just by Halberstone, but by general popular consensus or whatever. Because uh, this was a guy, like you mentioned at the very beginning, that he was you know he came out of the ABA, and uh, you know the Blazers were talked about as like the 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 pure basketball squad, the team that played team ball against like the the playground Sixers, and it's like wait a minute, the Blazers had this enforcer, Maurice Lucas, who came out of the ABA. And the reason why that series turned around is because Maurice Lucas, like, started fighting Daryl Dawkins and intimidated all the Sixers. <laughs> so, like, this doesn't quite jive with the, the narrative of them as, like, the perfect team basketball when Maurice Lucas, like, intimidated the other team into submission. Um, so I feel like that that idea wasn't quite expounded upon fully in this book as well as it could have been. Uh, kind of that 
the paradox and the narrative and the actuality of what took place. Um, but I guess that's that's a good way to talk about Maurice Lucas, though, because um, he was very much a you know a team player, but also marked off his turf and like you know. Uh, if he wasn't getting paid his money, he wasn't going to sacrifice for the team. He wanted to get his money. Like uh, the money, his interest came first, and then he would take care of the team. But if he wasn't getting taken care of himself, he wasn't going to uh, stick his neck out for the team in the long run. And good for him because they were going to do it for him. Like I thought nope. the, 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 end, the end of the book was great because he goes to Jersey. He starts playing again. He's like, oh, I'm healthy. And Calvin Nat's a bust. And I felt like the Blazers deserved it. They completely screwed him. Um, he was worth so much more money than they were giving him, and everyone knew it. So, I don't know. I kind of like the way that resolved, to be honest. <laughs> One of the other key characters is, um, of course, Dr. Jack Ramsey, the uh, considered at the time either the best coach in the game or right in that um, right in that category. Um, had the, the the loud '70s clothes with the big collars and the the gaudy suits. Um, you know, was um, I, I definitely think there's very much like the Tom Thibodeau like attitude toward each game of like, you know, absolutely having to do everything you can to win each game. And um, even maybe sometimes at the expense of the larger picture, you know, just he has the the red face, the veins popping, um, takes <laughs> losses so hard that he has to work out after midnight or walking alone through the empty streets in strange cities uh, also was a big physical fitness guy and you know the other thing is that he had a system that he deeply uh believed in and liked to contrast it with um you know s- systems like guys who didn't fit guys who were you know considered like more one-on-one players or guys who like to freelance and weren't necessarily fits like he 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 turned his nose on those guys he was you know like even someone like Artis Gilmore apparently was someone they were thinking about trading for and you know Gilmore's one of the top two or three big men in the league at the time and um and he's like no he, he doesn't pass so we're we're not going to do that you know that that kind of thing um i i, I do think that that and that kind of came to bit bite him and the Blazers a little bit, you know, with maybe lacking flexibility and maybe that limited their options on, you know, who they were able to, even if, you know, if, if the Lucas situation was untenable, you know, you, they, there were, it limited your options of who you could bring in because, you know, you really needed, you really needed Bill Walton for the system to work the way that, you know, it, it did. I mean, other guys could fit in, but it just, you know, it's, um, I, I think that was obviously one kind of negative. Um, so, um, uh, so Curtis, how did you, uh, how did Jack Ramsey come across for you? Uh, Ramsey, I, I think he did a pretty good job explaining him. Uh, he was, he was a hard ass, uh, in, in, in mostly a loving way. Uh, but he, he was a hard ass. Uh, you, and you look at his, uh, his coaching record with the Blazers, which I handily have pulled up in front of me, so I don't get nothing Ooh. wrong. Um, the team, the worst they ever did was 38 and 44, and that was the year that uh, Halberstam wrote about, the 79-80 season. So uh, this was a guy that, like, drove his teams and pushed him hard, like, to the max to get to, like, a 42-40 and 40 record or a 44-38 and 38 record when they might have been better off just saying, like, well, you know, we got a little, you know, some, some injuries this year. Guys aren't going to be coming back. Uh, let's just, you know, not tank, because uh, they didn't use that word back then, but... Uh, how about we just let guys rest up and uh, we'll just get ourselves a nice draft pick and kind of try to reload. Um, Jack Ramsey's attitude would not allow for such things. Uh, he he pushed the team to the maximum of their talent. That's how they got to the finals and won the championship. But 
uh, part of me thinks like his his drive they, they pushed the team that hard like a Thibodeau would um you know the in the long run like that was not beneficial for the team because uh, we forget Walton well not like all of us here but like you know generally speaking uh, people kind of forget that Walton like his his major injury took place in the playoffs in uh 78 uh yeah 78 when they were yeah. playing the Sonics like he came back uh, from his previous foot injury that same year. And, like, you know, he rushed back to get there to play in the playoffs. And what happens, he breaks his foot again, and that's what sh- shut him down for, like, two years after that. So uh, you, you got to think with a, a coach that was a little less um, tunnel-visioned, I guess is a good term, uh, a little less tunnel-visioned than Jack Ramsey. He might have said, like, what's the point of having him come back for the playoffs? Let's just let him rest and come back next year. Hopefully he'll be healthy. Now we mm-hmm. can make, like, a, a better three-, four-year run instead of trying to make this this one run this season. Yeah, I mean, well, one thing that stands out about those the, the the 77 Blazers is, I mean, Lucas was 24, Walton was 24, Bob Gross is 23, Lionel Hollins was 23, Twardzik was 26, um, Johnny Davis was 21. Yeah. I mean, you know, basically almost yeah, everyone in their core, they, these were all guys, you know, these were all young guys. I mean, they really could have um, kept it together and, you know, and, and been, you know, a, a great team for, you know, five, seven, ten years maybe. No, I, th- I think it's the the youngest um, championship team in NBA history. Still, uh, yeah, they're really really young team. Uh, so yeah, I, I don't know why they felt the need to just keep rushing guys back. Right, and I think uh, you know, Jason, you mentioned the you know the contrast to Tom Thibodeau, and you know, I, obviously me living in Chicago, and, and James can attest to this as well. Doing you know running the uh, the NBA injury report on Twitter, or whatever is that? Yeah, I thought that, and and when you mentioned that, I I, I wasn't quite sure because reading throughout this, and I was saying Jack Rams reminds me of somebody, but who? But who? I, I couldn't remember, and it was <laughs> it was it was so close to me the entire time because then when I went to the notes and you said Tom Thibodeau, and I went, yeah, of course, like duh, that's exactly who of of a guy that just. Every game is like the last game. Like every game is is the game seven of the NBA Finals. We have to win this game. We have to do this. We, you know, and and you get this sort of vibe from him, and and you got that from Tom Thibodeau, and you get you get it from a lot of coaches, you know, in the NBA as well. So I don't want to just just say Tom Thibodeau, but the contrast of those two, I thought was was or the contrast and comparing of those two, I thought was really really important. And I think it absolutely is something that you see with these guys where. Yeah, you, you you look at potential teams that could have you know had longer runs or whatever, and then you look at a guy who who is so focused on winning that next game and winning this game or this season and everything that he can't look at the big picture, can't look at that sort of stuff. And yeah, I, I think there are definitely you know comparisons of that. I mean, I think Jack Ramsey is a far better coach than Tom Thibodeau is, and well, that remains to be seen for a little bit. But I think right now we can you know easily say that. But in terms of that, I think it's absolutely you know a great comparison of a guy who just was obsessed with winning and just in a lot of ways, even though he, he's a very smart man, very intelligent, was so hyper-focused on winning that next game that a lot of times you do sort of lose a lot of the big picture stuff. And and you also get the idea as well, and and, and for people that, you know, in Chicago, we hear a lot about this, of, of Tom Thibodeau's just, un- like, he wants everybody to follow his work ethic. Like, he's a guy that's just going to sleep at the gym, you know, he's going to be there in the morning, and, and, like, guys would have to go to other arenas to, to practice because they didn't want to be around him. Like, they just wanted, like, one day without him there. And you see that with Ramsey as well, where he just... He, he can't understand why, you know, his players aren't as committed as he is. And it's like he just can't wrap his head around that. And he blames it on, oh, these modern players or whatever. It really would be any sort of <laughs> like, you know, level and an era of players would at some point just be like, all right, like, just just chill, like, just calm down. It's all right. Like, but Ramsey doesn't see it that way. You know, he's got a, every thing. Every game is the most important game ever. And and, you know, it, it led them to winning. As you mentioned, it led them to a championship. But it also probably led to that franchise and that and that dynasty or the mini dynasty not having, you know, as much success as they probably could have had 
he made me think of two other people from um, the game today who have long histories in the NBA um, that we haven't mentioned yet. And to me, he was almost a combination of it was a little Scott Skilesy. Like maybe he's great at like whipping these guys into shape, but after a couple of years, like might lose him a little bit. And then also <laughs> from, it was shades of Phil Jackson with just the adherence to a system, perhaps sometimes to the detriment of, you know, talents that might not thrive in that particular system, but could be of use if you were, you know, just a little bit more flexible. Um, but in general, I just thought he was a man of contradictions. Like you've got, I thought it was interesting that, you know, he's this, this really old school presence, but he has these like wild modern clothes. Like, I don't know, that like speaks to something in his like psychology that I find sort of strange. Because usually when someone is that like work ethic-y, I mean, it's like a very broad stroke thing to say, but you don't think of them as being like flamboyant um, in their dress, like usually. Um, And then you've got like the, he, you know, he kind of has this preternatural, preternatural ability to kind of see what's happening before it happens. Yet you've got this image of this, like the sweatiest coach in all of basketball who like literally (laughs) sweats through whatever, like how could you sweat through dress shoes? I'm assuming he was wearing, right? Like I've never heard of that before. Like sneakers is one thing, but like visible sweat through your dress shoes. Like that's a tremendous amount of sweat. So, um, I just thought, um, uh, yeah, it was, I'm not exactly sure what to make of him. Um, cause he did have a lot of contradictions, but I guess that's also like pretty normal and human, but I thought that was good. A good part on Halberstam to kind of show, that he's not just like this robot, um, you know, perfectionist. Yeah. So. I, I I thought that was good too, and, and um, I, I thought the sort of the the rivalry and contrast with Lenny Wilkins was interesting because because Wilkins had preceded him in Portland, and then Ramsey came in during the championship year, and people obviously gave Ramsey a lot of credit for um, doing that, but Wilkins is you know privately kind of saying, well, you know, yeah, but I never had a healthy Bill Walton either, you know, um, so there are obviously a lot of factors that led to that, but then Wilkins went to um, Seattle, and then one a championship in 79 and he's sort of more known as a player's coach a little bit more easygoing but he's also um in the same year in fact he's coping with some of the same problems of success that Ramsey's had to deal with in uh, Portland particularly um feuding with uh, Dennis Johnson um and uh and, and and Wilkins is kind of Ramsey is sort of put off. Uh, I don't. I forget if they specifically mentioned it with Wilkins, but he's sort of put off with the former players being named coaches. Like he feels like you know I'm a coach and this is a serious profession, and it, it goes through his you know extensive college um, uh, career at um, at St. Joe's and and and, and you know, having a long time you know long standing coaching and taking it very seriously. Not that Lane Wilkins didn't take coaching seriously, but it's just like the idea that like a player could just kind of walk in and do it is sort of offends his sensibilities. And so they have kind of a, you know, they don't ever like, you know, talk shit about each other, but they definitely have like a, um, I like sort of drawing the parallels between the uh, two coaches, even though they're in a very similar situation during the season. Oh yeah. I was about to say, it's, it just really sucks. Um, what happened with Lenny Wilkins up in Seattle? Uh, like the, the the feud with Dennis Johnson, that's one of the things that pisses me off the most. Um, thinking back on the NBA in that period, because uh, that just, you know, we talk about the Blazers being like potential dynasty. The Sonics were also a potential, um, not I quite say dynasty, but they're, you know, they're going to be contenders for like five years in a row. Uh, but like Dennis Johnson, just, I don't know what the hell happened to him, but he just started to hate everybody on the team and everybody started to hate him. 
Um, and then Gus Williams, the very next year, held out for a new contract. So uh, what was happening with the Blazers was not unique. Uh, there was definitely, like, players, um, I guess, feeling more assertive about their contract status, uh, wanting to get their money uh, that they felt they deserved, and that management wasn't paying up. So um, I feel like a almost equally interesting book could be written about the Sonics from the same season. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.